Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. It may take you a minute uh, to find where that is. While you are turning there, I do want to make a couple little, um, show you a couple of things that we have as well. We recently ordered some more decals for people's cars, which just has uh, our church logo on it. And so if you're interested in that, maybe you've been seeing some cars with this on the back of it. We'd love for you to slap one of these on the back of your car. Um, represent for us. That would be great. We got a bunch of these back there in the next steps area on that table. Uh, feel free to grab one if you would like one. Also, we reordered a few stickers as well. We got the orange ones like we had last time, which were fun. A lot of people enjoyed them. But we also did something this time with our color palette that just kind of displays the different colors that work through our, our discipleship process that we have recently launched here. So anyway, if you'd like any of these, we have some of them. They're free to you. Take them. Uh, use them. Um, we... Uh, we certainly want people to know that we're here and that God is up to something. So anyway, wanted to remind you uh, of those things that are available to you. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. Uh, since the last time we met for midweek, uh, we finished a couple of different things. We finished a letter to the Galatians. We've read um, a little bit more in the book of Acts. And as of today, if you are where I am in my reading, uh, we have finished the first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, in case you are unaware, one of the things that we've been doing is we've been reading through uh, portions of the Bible together as a church. This year we're reading through the New Testament. We've got tons of those Bible reading plans, by the way, if you want to jump in with us. They're also at the Next Steps area. I'd love for you to walk up and grab one, bring it home with you, and start reading the Bible with us. That would be fantastic. But this year we're going through the New Testament together. And uh, what we do on Wednesday nights is we just kind of take a portion of what we've been reading and we spend some time together just kind of asking God to show us uh, something a little bit deeper as we worship Him together. So uh, this week we are looking at a passage of Scripture from First uh, Thessalonians in chapter number 1. Actually, it's not a passage, it's the entire chapter of First Thessalonians uh, 1. So anyway, just a little side note, that's kind of what we've been doing. So if you've been reading through the Bible plan with us today, tonight if you're a night reader or a morning reader, whatever the case was, you should be finishing um, the first letter to the Thessalonians. Now, if you remember uh, from your readings in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas at that point in time in church history were planning to uh, go back and visit the churches that they planted in their first missionary journey. Matter of fact, we read this in Acts chapter 15 verse 36. Here's what Luke recorded. He said, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how each of them are. Now we know that this was about to take place at the end of Acts chapter 15 until Paul and Barnabas had a little bit of a disagreement between who was going to go on this next missionary journey with them. This is kind of a very interesting moment in the book of Acts because you don't really think of Paul and Barnabas having any issues, especially with all that they, they saw together as they saw churches planted and people uh, come to know Jesus. But in this moment, because of some issues that Paul had with John Mark, he would not go with Barnabas if John Mark was going to go with him. And Barnabas was not going to leave John Mark behind. So this was obviously a pivotal moment. Barnabas and John Mark, they went a different direction and continued some missionary efforts. And Paul took Silas with him and began what we know as his second missionary journey. Now, I only mention this because in the timeline of the early church, early on in their missionary efforts, when Paul and Silas took off on the second missionary journey, 
they came across a young man who would become a staple in the New Testament. His name is Timothy. They met Timothy in Lystra, and he continued with them from Lystra in Acts chapter 16. He continued with them as they continued on their missionary journey. Now, they visited several other places, including a town by the name of Philippi. Now, we remember this particular town uh, probably a little bit more than others, and there's a few reasons for that. One is because of the events that took place um, at Philippi while Paul and Silas were there on his second missionary journey. You would remember this scene in Acts chapter 16 uh, when they were proclaiming the gospel. They were arrested because of it. They were thrown in jail, and at the midnight hour, they were singing praises to Jesus when the jail cells came open, and the head jailer was about to take his own life because he figured everybody had left and he would die anyway. But Paul and Silas reassured him that nobody was gone. Everybody was still there, and they saw this guy come to faith, and a lot of other incredible things happened. So obviously that event makes Philippi stand out in our minds. But also there is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi known as Philippians. And so it's probably uh, why these th this particular town stands out more than others. But Philippi is not the only place in Paul's second missionary journey that he visited after he was asked to leave Philippi, which by the way, I want that to settle in for just a moment. Um, at the end of Acts chapter 16, whenever uh, they, you know, all this stuff has happened, the jailer and his family get saved. It is reported back to the jailer that he can let Paul and Silas go because they no longer want them in their city. They don't care what bad things they did. They don't care what the penalty should be. They don't want these guys in their town anymore. And so they set them free, but not just to be free, they set them free to get out of their town. Now, the reason why this is so significant to me is because I, I don't really, I can't fathom what it would be like to have such an impact on a city for the name of Jesus that people actually want you to leave there, right? So this kind of helps summarize the, the impact that Paul and Silas had on the town of Philippi. They so shared Jesus with people that it started such an uproar that they were not just thrown in prison, not just punished, but eventually set free, not because they were innocent in the eyes of the city officials in Philippi, but because that's how much they wanted to get rid of them and the proclamation they were making in the name of Jesus. So many people's lives were being transformed. It was so turning that city upside down that they were asked to leave. But when they left Philippi, they came to a town called Thessalonica. So the reason why I give you that little short history lesson is because in the timeline, I want you to realize where Paul and Silas are, which is why, by the way, for those of you who might be wondering, hey, why did we read Acts 17 and 18 and then jump to the first letter of Thessalonians? Well, it's because in the timeline of the early church, this is chronologically when this the accounts of this letter would be happening. So you can obviously read all about their experience in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Probably if you've been reading through the Bible with us in the New Testament, you have already read Acts chapter 17. But I do want to give you a little bit, uh, just kind of briefly before we jump into the text, about the city of Thessalonica. The city was founded in 316 B.C. It was named for the sister of Alexander the Great. Now, the city itself was busy. It was an important town. It had a mixed population of Romans, Greeks, and Jews. Now, the only reason why this is significant is because some of the context that we read, both in 1 Thessalonians and soon in 2 Thessalonians, 
helps kind of paint the picture of the diversity that existed within this particular town. It was located on the Via Ignatia. I don't know a whole lot about that. I've never, um, I've, I've, I've never toured um, that area. But at this point in time, when this letter was written or when this church was planted, this was a great highway that linked Rome with the whole region to the north of the Aegean Sea. And the reason why this is significant is because I don't know if Paul saw what a busy and, and high-trafficked area Thessalonica was, and that was a part of his strategy for planting a church there, or if he was just listening strictly to the leadership of God, and he said, plant a church, and so he did, or so many people were getting saved that there was no other option but to plant a church. All those things may be true, but I will say this, there does seem to be some significance with how important this city was at its time, with the amount of different people who were coming and going, that this became a beautiful location to plant a church such as this one. Now, in this particular um, city, Paul stayed for a few weeks. He preached as long as he could until the Jewish religious authorities stirred up enough opposition, similar to Philippi, but a little different, stirred up so much opposition that Paul would be ran out of town, but not until he had successfully planted a new but thriving church. So this is kind of the setting that's happening in Thessalonica. It's during their efforts in Thessalonica that we get one of the most awesome statements about the missionary efforts of Paul. It comes in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. It's one of my favorites as the early church is growing. Here's what Luke records. He writes, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're preaching the gospel uh, you know, house to house in, in the synagogue as often as they can. The authorities are so mad, they begin to look for them. Clearly this guy named Jason was a big deal in the town, probably the guy who started uh, the church there that was left with that along with Timothy. Nonetheless, they found him, dragged him out, and even some of the other Christians, and they're shouting at them. Here's what it says. These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. Now, obviously it's a pretty poor situation of the abuse and persecution that they're experiencing in the towns that they're going through, but what's really significant to me is the way in which these guys are described. Men who have turned the world upside down are now here. Like, I don't know how often you've been described in that way, but man, I really wish on my tombstone one day, that's what it says. Here lies a guy who turned the world upside down for the name of Jesus, right? This is the description that is given to the early church. By the time we get to Acts chapter 17, in Thessalonica, Jesus is becoming so famous that in their minds, literally, the entire world is being turned upside down down. Now this letter is traditionally attributed to Paul, but if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1, which we're about to do, you'll discover that Paul is not the only author of this letter. Here's how verse 1 is recorded. Paul, Silvanus, also known as Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So here's this collection of missionaries who have traveled to this city, seen a church born, and are now writing back to help encourage them, 
help them grow in their faith, help them become greater followers of Jesus. When we open this letter, this is this group who has done these efforts who are writing back to this church. Now for me, when I was reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, a thought came to my mind. Here was the thought. Do you know that feeling that you get when you, you put something together or you plug something in for the first time or you replace something or you turn it on, whatever it was, right? You had to replace a part or, or you plugged everything up to your TV with some new device or whatever that looked like, but the very first time you tried to use it, everything worked right. You had those few and limited experiences in your life. I don't know if you're like me, but you probably had more of the other moments, which is what I've had. It's the moments where this did not happen. You followed the instructions, you opened the package, you did what it told you to do, but no matter how many times you looked on your Bluetooth area, that device still could not be found, right? It still could not be linked. It still did not turn on. It did not work the way that you wanted it to work. And I don't know if you're like me, but it's frustrating when something doesn't work right. Anybody? Am I alone? All right, a couple of you, good. The rest of you are amazing. There's probably nothing better than that first try when everything works right. Well, this is the picture that I get when I read the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Paul seems to be showing us what church looks like when everything works right. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 2 and 3. I want you to see the picture of when everything works right. Verse 2, here's what Paul and the other authors wrote. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, here's what I want you to see from the very beginning of this letter. When everything works right, there is individual development. When everything works right in the church, each of us individually will be developed the way God wants us to be. In other words, personally, spiritual growth will happen in each of us if everything works right. This collection of authors are quick to make it known that they are thankful for the work of God through Jesus in the lives of the Thessalonian church. Now here's what we know. We know that what God begins in us, He will complete. Amen? This is why Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When He begins a work, he will finish it. Well, listen, he began a work at this church in Thessalonica. And all Paul could do is praise them for how that work was coming to completion individually as each of them were being developed into Jesus. That work is being seen through three particular virtues that Paul brings out in this letter. Those virtues are faith, love, and hope. Now these should not sound unfamiliar to you because they are common themes throughout the New Testament. 
As a matter of fact, Paul mentions them first in Galatians chapter 5 when he links them together like this. He said, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There's faith and hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. There's faith and love. Early on in the ministry of Paul, he realizes the importance of these three virtues, faith, hope, and love. As a matter of fact, he mentions them again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, as the virtues that abide. Doesn't matter about the rest of them. These three alone abide, in which he will go on to say, and the greatest of these is love. They're also mentioned by Peter in 1 Peter and by the writer of Hebrews in the letter to the Hebrews. Now I want you to hear some things that are significant about these particular virtues. Here's what Chuck Swindoll wrote. He said, We often regard faith, love, and hope as invisible virtues, qualities of the heart invisible to those around us. In other words, they're not seen. But in Paul's mind, faith resulted in works. Love manifested itself in labor. And hope could be seen in the perseverance of those in whom it dwelled. The significance of these virtues must not be overlooked. Here's what J.B. Lightfoot wrote. He said, faith rests on the past, love works in the present, hope looks to the future. In fact, John Stott wrote it like this. He said, faith, hope, and love are thus sure evidences of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Together, they completely reorient our lives as we find ourselves being drawn up towards God in faith, out towards others in love, and on towards future hope. The new birth means little or nothing if it does not pull us out of our fallen focus on ourselves and redirect us towards God, Christ, and our fellow human beings. Individually, the believers in the church of Thessalonica were developing spiritually. They were developing in three primary ways. Paul says, work of faith. You say, Danny, what's he referring to? What's their belief in everyday actions of life that God is who He says He is? Do you walk not by sight, but by faith? Is every step, every decision, every choice, everything that's working around you an object of faith in your life knowing that God is working in all things? True faith in God leads to good works. Faith is not unseen. It is seen in the way our lives are lived out every single day. This is why James says in James chapter 2, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now listen to me, it's not a work for faith, it is a work of faith. Because we have faith in God, we live out what He's doing in us. So pause for a moment, as we think about when everything works right, there is individual development. Well, as we think about ourselves personally, how would we define the work of faith that's being seen in our lives? Do you have a work of faith? 
Are you walking by faith daily as you live out your relationship with Jesus? Don't just say you have faith and don't have works. Faith is seen in works. That's why Paul says it is a work of faith. Another way he shows their development is through a labor of love. Say, so, Danny, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about their desire to see all people come to know Christ. True love for others will lead us to laboring on their behalf. Now, the word for labor is an interesting one. It literally means distress or trouble or toil. It carries the idea of the fatiguing nature of what is done or the magnitude of the exertion required. God creates a love within our lives that will go through any distress, any trouble, any toil to do what is best for other people. You say, Danny, how do we know that? Because Jesus was our perfect model of laboring love as He climbed on a cross to die for our sins. You say, Danny, how does individual development show itself? What well, it shows itself through works of faith. It shows itself through labors of love. You know what else it shows itself through? Our development shows itself through a steadfastness of hope. Say, Danny, what do you mean? Their determination to see every day as controlled by God, no matter what the church at Thessalonica faced. And can I tell you something, friends? They faced plenty of persecution for their faith. But no matter what they faced, they were unshaken because they had steadfastness of hope. They were... They were able to endure all things because of their hope in a future that couldn't be taken. Say, so Danny, how did this affect their lives in every way? They walked by faith. They served in love. They looked forward to a future hope that nothing in this life could compare to. Matter of fact, I was reading about these verses. This was from John Calvin. You may like him or not like him, but to deny that he was a brilliant mind, you would be crazy. John Calvin referred to this verse like this. He called it a brief definition of true Christianity. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Calvin was saying? He was saying you may not find a more concise definition of what individual spiritual development looks like in every believer than these three virtues. And Danny, why are you telling us this to us? Because how do you see these virtues in your life? Do you find that faith is a big part of who you are? Not that you just believe something, but that you action-based live in a way because of your beliefs. How does love affect every day that you're in? Are you laboring on behalf of others or is everything about yourself? What does your hope look like? Is your hope in your own stuff, your own success, your own dreams? Or is your hope in an unshakable reality that Jesus is who He says He is? Friends, listen to me. These virtues are the defining marks of every believer. And when everything works right, there will be individual development. Let me show you this. Keep reading verse 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
For we know, Paul continues, for we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Listen, friends, when everything works right, there will be individual development. But also, when everything works right, there is intentional discipleship. Don't miss this. Individual development is super important. All of us spiritually should be growing and becoming more like Jesus through our relationship with Him. Without a doubt, you alone are responsible for your growth in Jesus. But what about other people that God has placed around you that you do life with together so that you, each of you, can become who Jesus wants you to be? Listen, when everything's working right at the perfect church, there's individual development. But on top of that, there is intentional discipleship. There are efforts for people to grow together to be more like Jesus. Paul's goal was never to simply share some truths about God and then leave. He was never in a hurry to move on to the next place, even if you may think he was. He only moved to the next place when God led him to do so. His goal was always to help them not just hear the gospel, but see the gospel. This is intentional discipleship. It's not just saying something. It's living out that something in community with other people. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Intentional discipleship needs the Word. This is why Paul says, our gospel came to you not only in Word. They say, Danny, he said not only in Word. I agree, but doesn't that imply that it had to first come in Word? Paul didn't simply deliver a message like a mailman delivers a letter. There was more than what was said. However, don't miss the fact that it did come through words. It came through words, but not only in words. Listen, for the gospel to be known, to be heard, to be accepted, it must be proclaimed. Discipleship begins with God's Word being proclaimed, being read, being ingested, being shared. It starts with the Word proclaimed must be spoken, shared, told. Certainly, there was more to the presentation of the gospel than simply words. However, words were necessary. But I want you to see this too. Intentional discipleship needs accountability. He says the gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, I want to hone in on this word conviction for a moment. Certainly they shared with plenty of conviction when they came to the city of Thessalonica. In fact, just think about what happened before they got to this city. You say, Danny, what do you mean? This is from Acts 16. Listen to this encounter. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, 
Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now listen to me, friends. When you experience these types of moments with Jesus, with a collection of believers, I don't know a better way to describe conviction than this. There is no doubt that when it came to genuine pushing and prodding and deep conviction about what God wants for each of us, accountability was a natural part of their relationships. Why? Because they knew what God could do with people who were obedient to Him. Let me ask you something, friends. The Word is so important in discipleship. There's no doubt. This is why we have so many times when we read it and study it and proclaim it. It's so essential for our lives. Well, let me ask you this one. How essential do you place accountability in your life? How essential do you place other people pushing you and prodding you and with conviction helping you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus? I would dare say many of us don't have that. Maybe this is why everything doesn't always work out right. Intentional discipleship needs the Word. Intentional discipleship needs accountability. Listen, intentional discipleship needs the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, they needed even more than the Word and even more than conviction and accountability. No amount of clever words or deep conviction can change the hearts of men. We can't save anyone. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul would write to the church at Corinth, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and much trembling and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but watch this, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Man, when's the last time, just today alone, that we invited the Holy Spirit to unleash His power in our lives? You think we can walk with Jesus on our own? You think we can do this Christian life without His Word? Of course we can't. You think we can do this Christian life without other people holding us accountable and pushing us to deeper convictions? Of course we can't. Do you think we can do this Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit enabling our every move? Of course we can't. Intentional discipleship needs the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me show this last one too, though. Intentional discipleship needs modeling. This is why Paul said, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Listen, they entered their homes, their lives, their hearts. The message didn't just warm the hearts of the Thessalonians and make them feel good for a moment. It produced outward works of faith, love, and hope. They had examples of living, active, 
powerful faith from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They embraced them. They lived among them. They poured themselves into the church. Friends, listen to me. When, when everything works right, there is certainly individual development. But please don't miss this. When everything works right, there is intentional discipleship. Man, who is helping you be better today than you were yesterday? Who are you pushing to be more like Jesus? How are you collectively in the Word with others being drawn closer to Jesus and pushed to go beyond yourself? Because not only do you have someone holding up your sides, you have people living it with you every single day. Listen, these guys didn't just come to say a couple of words and leave. No, no, no. They came to do life with this church. Why? Because they wanted everything to work. And it does. When there's individual development and intentional discipleship. Let me show you this last thing. Last couple of verses. We'll go fast. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. But look, it didn't stop there. Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Listen, when everything works right, there is individual development. When everything works right, there is intentional discipleship. I want to show you this last one. When everything works right, there is incredible demonstration. You say, Danny, what do you mean? They became imitators of the Lord. This is why Paul said back in verse 3, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, this is not the only group he tells to be imitators. He tells the church in Corinth the same thing. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Listen, it didn't matter that there was much affliction. They received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Listen, they experienced persecution like any follower of Jesus experiences persecution. Listen, Paul would later remind Timothy of this truth in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But can I tell you something? That didn't keep them from following closely Jesus. Despite the persecution, the joy of the Holy Spirit is how Paul describes their obedience. John Stott said this, he said, The same Spirit that gave power to those who preached the Gospel gave joy to those who received it. He was working at both ends, so to speak, in the speakers and in the hearers. Matter of fact, one of the best stories I've read lately was about a memory that was shared by a guy named Richard Wormbrandt. Matter of fact, I think Corey may have shared this experience not too long ago. We've been reading a book together as a staff, and this particular uh, memory came up as we were reading about some of the principles. Richard Wormbrand, you may not know this, he's a was a Jewish Christian minister. He later became the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs, so you may remember that a little bit more. But the memory is about a time that he was in jail for his faith, him and other believers who had been proclaiming the gospel around the world. He wrote that it was strictly forbidden 
to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. This was not unknown. They knew if we preached the gospel, we would get beat. So a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating. So everyone was happy. It's not exactly how I think about persecution. But that's the difference that this type of demonstration happens when everything works. Joy in the Holy Spirit, no matter what's happening, is what's referred to as the greatest description of the church. I think this is the type of joy that Paul's referring to when he writes about their joy in the midst of affliction and suffering. They were filled with joy through the Spirit even though they faced momentary affliction. Listen, Paul mentions this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He wrote these words, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but these things that are unseen are eternal. Listen, since they were imitators of Jesus who received the Word through the joy of the Spirit, they became examples to all believers. Listen, not just in their hometown. Paul says everywhere. Their faith in God was being heard about throughout the world. Other churches were inspired by them. Lives were being changed because of their stance for the Lord. People were hearing about the amazing things that God was doing so much that Paul and them didn't even have to tell people anymore. Sorry. I thought somebody was feeling the Spirit in that moment right there. They would walk into an adjacent town, and before they could even get there to tell them about Jesus, the reputation of the church at Thessalonica had beat them to it. You say, Danny, what, why is any of that important? Could you imagine if that type of incredible demonstration was happening here? Could you imagine if it was happening in my life, in your life? Could you imagine if that type of development, that type of discipleship was what was normal for us? Be incredible what to see and would be reported about Jesus if that was the case. I wrote down a couple of questions. I'll end with these. How does our church measure up to the church where everything works right? Now listen, I'm sure they had problems. They weren't perfect. But isn't it amazing the praise that Paul and Silas and Timothy give them? Are we seeing individual development? Are you personally growing in your faith? If not, what needs to change so that you are personally being obedient to God? Are we seeing intentional discipleship? In other words, are you growing with others who are helping you become more like Jesus? The church at Thessalonica didn't just magically become more like Christ. They were intentional about pushing each other to be more like Jesus. Are we? Are we seeing incredible demonstrations of Jesus among our people? Is our church an example to Saltillo and the rest of the world? When everything works right in the local church, there is individual development, intentional discipleship, and incredible demonstrations. What needs to change in me for this to become the norm in my setting?